0: All right, let's go, Mark chapter six. We're gonna be in verse seven through 30. When I read this passage, this is kind of the nature of going through a book of the Bible exegetically. You just never know what you're gonna get. It's kind of a running joke that either on Mother's Day or Father's Day, we're gonna get a very treacherous and drama-filled text. I can't control it, and guess what? We got one today. Uh, This is a story of John the Baptist and Jesus, a story full of treachery and corruption and drama, but also great resolve. And I pray that as we go through it, the Holy Spirit would enlighten your heart to what he's doing in the world, but also how he would endeavor to use you in the world. And so I'm just going to start by reading the whole passage. It's fairly long. But it's a story, and I want you to kind of take it in with me. Mark chapter 6, verse 7 through 30. And Mark, the gospel writer, says it this way. Starting in verse 7. He says, and he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they won't listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So when they went out and proclaimed the people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, oh, he's Elijah. And others still said, "No, oh, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, He said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, that ain't right. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Don't do that. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced she pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and asked, I said to her mother, Herodias, What should I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked her, Uh, asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent out an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb, Verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. This is the word of the Lord. I am partly glad that there's passages like this that show up in the Bible because so many of them are full of exceeding joy and power and success stories, testimonies of good and great things happening. I sometimes need ones like this to remind me that sometimes following Jesus is hard. I think I need passages like this to remind me of that because when I follow Jesus, it's sometimes hard. And without passages like this, and stories and testimonies to affirm that, I tend to feel like I'm alone or I'm doing something wrong. If following Jesus has been hard for you in the last year, I want you to know that you're not alone and you're not weird and you're likely not necessarily doing something wrong either. You've just signed up for something that is wild and adventurous and with it is gonna come a few things and I wanna walk you through three things that you can expect when you're following Jesus. The first one is that discipleship, the other word that we use for following Jesus, requires A sense of dependence. Dependence specifically on Jesus. Now I'm getting that from that first passage. And Jesus called the 12. Using that same phrase that ancient rabbis for centuries would use when they called disciples, Not just to come to church, as we would know it, or to come to a Bible study, but a calling from a rabbi was a calling to give up their life and enter into a life with that rabbi. It was like a best friendship, if I can call it that. But a best friendship with a sense of mentoring. You were leaving everything behind to walk with a rabbi and live their life and emulate them and talk with them and ask them questions and be challenged by them for years. And this is what Jesus does to his disciples. This is what he offers to all of you. He's saying, I'm calling you. From the very beginning of our discipleship is a sense of dependence. Jesus calls the 12. But he doesn't just stop there with that sense of belonging that as a disciple, one of the first elements, one of the first principles of your Christianity is that you belong to somebody. Maybe a A concept that grates against our modern sensibilities of autonomy and independence. You belong to Jesus. He is your new rabbi. He is your master and your Lord. And he calls you first to him. And I love this because before he tells us to do anything for him, he calls us to be with him. One of my favorite passages in the whole Bible is in Mark chapter three where it says, and he called the apostles to be with him. And then he sent them out to preach and to cast out demons. I love that about my rabbi. I love that about Jesus. Your first order of business as a disciple is to be intimate with Christ, out of which will flow all of your ministry and work. Jesus calls us to him in dependence, but it doesn't stop there. There is an outflow of that, right? I love how it says that he charged them. First, it says he gave them authority over unclean spirits, gives them power and authority to do his work, and then he charges them not to take anything for their journey except a staff and a few other things. A couple things here. We see Jesus giving his disciples authority. It's like he's stamping them with the approval of heaven, saying you have everything you need in me to get it done, but he's also telling them, he's also making this tangible, he's saying now don't bring anything with you unless you need it. I'm giving you my authority, but I also want you to live that way. What way? Utter dependence on Jesus. And when you read this passage, it's kind of a long, a lengthy passage where he talks in detail about what they're to bring, what they're not to bring. Don't read into that, wow, I shouldn't have any stuff in my house. <laughs> Jesus says one walking stick, I actually have two. I'm like it's totally out of line with the kingdom of God. That's not what this passage is about. He's just saying you don't need a bunch of stuff to follow me. All you need is everything you have in Jesus Christ. The other thing is, this is the exact phrase when he tells them, tighten your belt, put on your sandals, you just need one staff. It's the same phrase that comes up one other time in the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verse 11. You know what that passage is about? It's the Passover meal, it's the last night before Israel is gonna be called out from Egypt, out of slavery into the promised land. And as they are taking that Passover meal to remember, God says to them, tighten your belt, put on your sandals, and grab your staff. I love that that line is what Jesus then says to his first century disciples. Not only is he telling us all you need, everything you need pertaining to life and godliness is found in Christ, in whom all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom abide. But he also ties it into that first story of salvation. Why did God tell the Israelites, hey, grab your sandals, grab your belt, grab a tunic? It was because he was steering in them a sense of urgency. He was saying, I'm about to do something wild in your midst. Don't get too comfortable With the status quo we're on the move and it's that story that Jesus ties in his commission to you and I we're on the move I'm about to do something in your life take whatever you need but don't get too comfortable I'm calling you and I'm charging you but third he's also commissioning you he sends the disciples out on mission He sends them to heal the sick and to spread the good news and to move out of the church walls into the neighborhood two by two. I love it. In fact, I love this description where it says that they then anointed the sick with oil and prayed for healing and they were healed. Oil in the Bible, especially in the the Old Testament, always signifies this, this sense of good news. For example, Psalm 45, verse seven, it says, God has anointed you with the oil of gladness. Anytime someone was anointed with oil, in the Old Testament, that oil was so fragrant it would fill the room, and it's a visual, a, a very fragrant visual of the good news that everywhere you are to go, You're filling the room with the presence of Jesus Christ. And this is is what Jesus is telling his disciples to do. This is what he's telling us to do. I've called you, you're mine, but I'm giving you everything that I have and everything that you need, but I'm also sending you out. He's calling us, he's charging us, he's commissioning us. All of this speaks to that original statement, discipleship requires dependence on Jesus, to depend on him for everything. Everything. Now, this is where we turn the corner into a dramatic part of the story, right? Discipleship also brings opposition. Mark chapter six, verse 14, Herod heard about it, for Jesus' name had become known. I love that line, Jesus' name had become known. There are only two passages in the entire book of Mark that are not about Jesus. This is one of them. It's about John the Baptist. The other one is also about John the Baptist at the beginning of Mark. These two solitary passages that have very little to do directly with Jesus are about this guy named John. And most people, most scholars will tell you that it's for two different reasons. One, we see in this passage, John the Baptist paying dearly for walking and speaking faithfully. And what we see in this passage, a sandwich, if you will. Think think about this passage. It started with the disciples being called and commissioned. It's going to end with them coming back and reporting to Jesus what they did. But right smack dab in the middle is John losing everything. What we see here is a couple things. One, I think we see that John, every time he appears, appears as a foreshadowing of Jesus is giving us a picture of what Jesus is gonna do. And yet the Jesus that comes along is gonna be even far greater than that. John himself would say in that first passage, I have been baptizing you in water, but I'm giving you a picture of someone else to come. They're gonna baptize you, not in water, but in the Holy Spirit. I'm giving you a picture of something greater to come. In the second one, John will die in a prison by himself Jesus will die too, but Jesus will rise from the dead. So we see a picture of the death of Jesus, but we also see a picture of what we should expect to face when we follow this Jesus. That for those who wanna follow Jesus in a world full of greed and decadence and power and wealth and corruption, It won't always be easy. Now I know this passage is foreign to us as we sit here freely worshiping the Lord in a building and it might not be the case all over the world but every Christian in the world in some way whether on this end of the spectrum or on this one will face some kind of opposition for following Jesus Christ because Christ does not fit into the world's system very nicely. And so when you endeavor to follow him, the world will push against you. For others, it might look like prison. For others, it might look like losing their lives. For you, it might mean trouble in the workplace. For others, it might mean trouble with your neighbor. For some of you, you might be ostracized by your family. For some of you, it might mean to withhold your integrity, uh, you're gonna have to take a pay cut. There's so many different ways that this will show up, but it will show up. It won't always be easy and there will be moments where we have to surrender things that we found comfortable that gave us a sense of ease. And when that moment comes, the question we need to answer right now before that moment comes, because it will come, is to say, is Jesus worth that trouble? Is he worth the trouble? There will be trouble. Is he worth it? This is that moment for all of us where we've gotta reckon with the reason why we're in this building or outside in the overflow, or at home watching on a laptop. Why are we a part of this thing called the church? And there might be a million reasons why you started. I have them too. I grew up in the church. My parents went to church. And that had some kind of formative effect on my life, even though I fought kicking and screaming until I was 24. For others, it might be tradition. It might just be the way you grew up. For others, it might be deeply tied to your political system, and that's why you're in it. For still others, it might be culturally acceptable in your sphere right now. For others, it might be a relational benefit. I go to church because that's where I meet friends. There's so many different reasons. Many of them are good. But none of them will get you through the opposition that you're going to face for following a king who threatens all other counterfeit kings. For that, you're gonna need something deeper. And I want to argue today that that deeper has to come from Jesus himself. That you are, at some point in your life, whatever brought you into church today, praise God for that. But now I'm asking for the Holy Spirit to bring you deeper, if he hasn't already. For you to get get to a place where you are able to say, I am here not because of my mom, not because of my dad, not because of my friends, not because of the coffee and the donuts, not because there's childcare, but because, like 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse six, I have seen the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And if you can get to a place where you feel that in your gut, and maybe the Holy Spirit is right now taking you there, and it's a process, that's cool too. Then, when opposition comes, you'll be ready for it. Can you say that? Can you say, like, in John, when all of the disciples left Jesus because he started saying weird stuff in John chapter 7, and Jesus turns to Peter and says, do you want to leave me too? And Peter says, pfft. (laughs) where else would I go Lord come on you alone have the words of eternal life are you there can you say that right now you alone have the words of eternal life if you are praise God if you're not ask God Ask him to move you past all the surface things that he might have used to get us this far. And now is your moment to say, I want more. I want more. The disciples had more. They had that gut feeling. And this is my last point, is that discipleship, which requires dependence and brings opposition, is often fueled by resolve. What do I mean by resolve? Resolve is that gut feeling. To decide firmly on a course of action that is not easily derailed by circumstances. It just means you have something deeper in there. It means that even though your circumstances have changed, Your resolve has not. There's an anchor down there. You may have felt a sense of resolve for other things. Why are you at that job where it's really difficult right now? I've spoken to a number of people just today about difficult jobs. Why are you still there? Well, for some of you, there might just be this one thing that's like, oh. And that one thing could be, well, I just need to put food on the table. The other thing might be like, I still have things to do here. I still have something I want to accomplish. Why do you keep dealing with that one person even though they're the most difficult person you've ever encountered? Well, it might be a sense of resolve, something deeper. For you, it might just be, well, I'm related to him, <laughs> and it's Thanksgiving, there's not a lot I could do with. Resolve, man! There's something deeper than the circumstances you're facing that are moving you forward. We need that, too, with Jesus. We need to see beyond all of the cultural trappings that come with religion, to see the man himself, Jesus Christ, and to say, you alone have words of eternal life. Where else would I go? We see resolve in two different groups here. Mark chapter six, verse 29, after this tremendously tragic, corrupt story. The disciples heard of it, and they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Uh, This is probably speaking of John's disciples, not Jesus. They came and asked Herod for the body and buried him. Um, Because of that, they're probably likely the source of the story. In other words, John's words live on. They took his head and his body, but not his voice. The disciples must have had the sense to recognize that but I want you to see how scary that must have been. I mean, I can't read their minds, but if I lost like my leader who was just killed by an angry, capricious, frivolous king based on a drunken wager with some power-hungry people, I, the last place I would want to show up is in his front yard. And they go directly before him and ask for John's body. His words live on. He took his life, but not his voice. That's resolve. They must have sensed something deep down like, oh, he taught us things that we need to to hang on to. I'm going to follow him even though this might be the end. We also see, again, that this is a foreshadowing of Jesus' death. For Jesus' disciples will later... Come back. Mary, John. some of them later after he rises from the dead. This is a foreshadowing of Jesus' body being laid in a grave and a foreshadowing of his death. And here's the thing: we probably might not we, we probably won't die for our faith, because of the society that we live in but we too must come to a conclusion that following Jesus is worth all that may come. Because for us, the temptation we face perhaps is more sinister and deceiving than those who face death. We have options. We can attach Jesus to the rest of our stuff. In other parts of the world, where you have to choose between Jesus or death, life gets a little more clear. For us, we can be as ambiguous as possible. We can live our lives however we wanna do it, go to church and attach the name of Jesus to whatever we're doing, and no one's the wiser. In some ways, what we're immersed in is just a little more sinister than the rest of the world. And so to us, we too must come to a conclusion that following Jesus is worth all that may come. And to come to that conclusion, I think you first need to experience life with Jesus yourself. There comes a point in all of our lives where we need to move beyond living vicariously through another person's sermons, right? I'm still gonna preach sermons to you because I love it and that's a part of church, and there's value in that, and the Bible speaks of that. But there's also a sense in which it must become a fire in your own heart. Where we aren't living vicariously through the spirituality of our parents, or our friends, or our very spiritual co-worker, or fill in the blanks. Where we have heeded the command of Jesus and. Mark chapter 8, verse 34, when he says, the person who tries to preserve their life, keep their life, they're ironically the ones that lose it, but the one who comes to a point where they lose their life in order to find me, meaning they surrender their lives in order to find me, they are the ones who truly live. He'll go on to say, what good is it to gain the whole world if you lose your soul, the Corollary of that is, if you find me, you're going to find your soul. I'm going to restore your soul. Second passage we see of being fueled by resolve is in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. I love this, and I wanted to end on this verse. Because after a very disturbing and heartbreaking passage about one disciple losing their life, we get another one of some other disciples showing up to Jesus and being like, Jesus, it worked. Like, you told you told us to go, like, to carpenteria, like, meet people and do things and anoint them with oil and, like, raise the dead and heal the sick. And I don't know, I didn't even know if it was going to work or not. And I was kind of, like, just doing it out of the side of my, I'm just filling in the blanks here. I was just, like, sat down at Cajun Kitchen, just kind of did it safely just in case it didn't work. But they got healed, man! This is incredible. This is just how I envision it going down back then. This isn't actually in the Bible. But what is in the Bible is they come back to Jesus giving a report saying it worked. They came back and told Jesus all that they had done and taught. Jesus, we said what you told us to say, and it worked. We did what you told us to do, and it worked. People got healed, families got restored, people's hearts were opened up. I can't believe this! Oh my gosh! I love what Jesus says in the next line, which we'll study next week. He basically says, you know what, take a nap. (laughs) Go to a desolate place and lay down. But right here, we see the excitement of people who moved past the cultural trappings and expectations of the world and the spirituality of other people and owned it themselves. They were like, Jesus, you are real. We knew it in our minds, now we see it in our bodies. Or as Job would say at the end of his very tragic book, I used to hear about you, God, with the hearing of my ear. But now my eye sees you. That's my hope for my family, for me, and this church family, is that we all, every single one of us would be able to take that journey together where we'd say, I heard about Jesus with my ears but today my eye sees him. I'm gonna ask Robert to come up as we sing. And as you're asking about a discipleship that requires dependence, that will meet opposition, but is fueled by resolve, where can you start right now? Well, I think what a lot of us probably need to do is begin to fan the flame of our resolve today. For some of you, that might be following Jesus for the first time, instead of just hearing about him. For others that have been following Jesus for a long time, that just means going back to first things. In other words, it might be different for every single person in this room, but what is the same is there must be a moment in all of our lives where we fan the flame of our resolve in the Messiah that we have chosen as the God and savior and leader of our souls and of the universe. And to say once again with one another, you are real. And my eyes have seen you once again. Lastly, I can't help but notice that in the sandwich of texts, it starts with the disciples being called to Jesus. And it ends with them returning to Jesus. So I hope you see that theme there. Perhaps we can do that today constantly coming back to Jesus Christ. We're gonna do that in a few practical ways. One of them is through worship. Why do we sing songs together? It's because sometimes our hearts and minds need some space to catch up and our bodies can pull them along. Have you ever noticed that when you begin singing true words about God, your mind starts to catch up? There are moments when I come into this building and I'm like, I'm not feeling it today. But when I raise my hands and when I get on my face and when I begin to sing about the reckless love of Jesus, the Holy Spirit ministers to me and the heart catches up to what the body is already doing. I wanna invite you into that with me today to sing about the Lord. I wanna invite you into communion. We have stations uh, to the right and left over by the carpets, also outside in the, uh, the outside area out there. You can grab one of those elements, peel off the lid, take out a piece of the bread and the cup, and in an intimate place, remember what Christ has done to bring you to him. Lastly, we have prayer teams. You can see them over to the side with lanyards. They're available to pray for you. Maybe you don't have the resolve Maybe you are confused. Maybe you're facing a lot of opposition. We would love to support you in this journey so you don't have to feel like you're alone By praying for power from on high to come upon you. Because let me tell you something that many of you know but some of you don't yet know. But from my experience, Jesus Christ is worth it. And there might be some bumps in the road that you encounter just by following him but those bumps will pale in comparison to the glory and joy you will experience by following Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So as we enter into a space to reflect, but also respond to that, let's turn our eyes to Jesus and intentionally place ourselves in the presence of God who loves you and gave his life for you.